Welcome to the Get Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Liz McGavro, and I'm obsessed with all things writing, creativity, and telling your stories in your authentic voice, because I believe a good story can change the world. Ever since I was a little girl with my nose in a book, I dreamed of being an author. I wanted to see my books in bookstores everywhere. I wanted to talk about books. I wanted to soak up everything about the craft. My celebrity crushes were mostly authors and I could feel in my bones that the writer's life was my destiny. Fast forward to today. Along with my alter ego, Kate Conti, I'm an Agatha Award-nominated best-selling author with three mystery series, but it wasn't all smooth sailing along the way. I experienced many setbacks, crushing self-doubt, a lot of career detours, and I even lost my voice a few times when I let the world get in my way. Until I learned that writing was so much more than just a skill set you learned and developed over time. It's also an inside job that flourishes when you heal all the wounds that are stifling your creativity, which is no easy task. So if you're a writer of any kind, or if you've always wanted to write but aren't sure where to start, this is the place for you, my friend. We're gonna talk about all things writing process, craft, strategies to help you get writing and stay writing, the daunting world of agents, editors, and publishing, And because I'm using my authentic voice, I'm going to throw in a little woo-woo for you too. So let's get writing, shall we? Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Liz McGavro, and I am so excited about my guest today. So if you know me at all, you know I'm super into the Enneagram. I heard today's guest on another podcast about writing. This one was about writing process. And I started thinking about all the ways your Enneagram type can shape your writing from your characters all the way to your career. And I'd honestly not thought that much about it from that perspective before, though I had used it as a bit of a character development exercise here and there but I was more focused on it as like a life tool overall. But it was really interesting to think about it from the lens of writing um, and career and business and all of that stuff. And as writers, this is a really amazing tool that we can leverage. And Claire, my guest today, is talking with me about this. So here's a little about her. Claire Taylor is a fiction strategist and the owner of FFS Media. She helps authors create aligned and sustainable writing careers using various tools, including the Enneagram. She's written more than 35 fiction books under four pen names. She's also recently published her first nonfiction book for authors called Reclaim Your Author Career. Claire uses the Enneagram framework to help authors create careers they love and stories that stand out. And she's an advanced certified instructor through the Enneagram Spectrum Method developed and taught by Dr. Jerome Wagner. She currently lives in Austin, Texas with her husband and spends her days reading, playing soccer, experimenting with pottery, taking very long walks, and eating queso. She's a super fun guest and super knowledgeable, and I learned so much, and I hope you do too. So here we go. Hey, Claire, welcome to the Get Writing Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to chat today. Well, this is going to be really fun. So just for for the listener's benefit, um, I didn't know Claire. I had heard her on another podcast and she was talking about the Enneagram. It was a writer's process podcast. And I was immediately fascinated because although I've used the Enneagram briefly in like creating characters, I haven't really thought about it from the sense of how I approach my own writing. So I'm really excited to have this conversation today. So thank you so much for being here. So let's just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your company, FFS Media, and don't leave out what it stands for because I love it. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Um, Well, I run FFS Media, which stands for For Fuck's Sake Media. Uh, (laughs) For Fuck's Sake is sort of a a slogan of my life as I move through the world and um, make mistakes and see all of the things that other people are fucking up, um, in my opinion, oh my of God, course. Same. <laughs> well, <laughs> totally yeah, same. I will, I will see, <laughs> see more about why that's my opinion as we discuss the Enneagram. But um, <laughs> I that is essentially my publisher. So I publish my own books. Uh, 
again, it goes back to Enneagram type. You'll see why I like to be in control. And um, so I, I write a bunch of pen names, uh, different genres of fiction. I have a comedy satire pen name. I have a crime fiction pen name. I have a paranormal cozy mystery pen name. And then I have this like random, <laughs> random, like, paranormal police comedy pen name that I now public quote unquote co-publish those books with one of my other pen names. So very cool. It's, it's a, it's a whole mess. Um, but then I also do Enneagram consulting for authors on the side and coaching. And that is for not only using the Enneagram framework in building characters and developing uh, character you know, contrasts between your protagonist, your antagonist, that sort of thing, but also themes and, you know, uh, building audience and that sort of thing. So we also use the Enneagram for coaching on author career and how to align your career to your type, which is essentially what is your motivation and then building a career from there up. That's awesome. Okay. So I'm a total Enneagram junkie. Um, I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before, but not in a huge amount of depth. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of going back to the basics, just, you know, very briefly for listeners about what it is and what the types are in a sentence or two, just so people can have an idea. Okay. Um, a sentence or two. Wow. This is a topic <laughs> I get very long winded on very quickly. So I'll try and keep it brief. The Enneagram is a framework of personality that focuses and defines people into nine types based on a core fear and a core motivation. And so from that core fear and core motivation arise attentional patterns um, that create a filter. So there's a lot of information that's happening all of the time everywhere, Then we're, and we're moving amongst it. <laughs> and so our Enneagram lens, it's off, often called, helps us understand what information is getting through and what is not, and that is all about relevancy to our core fear. So it's a psychological framework in that way. Um, and the nine types you want me to go through all each of the nine types? Yeah, if you can do it, you know, I, I know sure. I know it takes oh, a while, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say this is gonna be more than a few sentences, yeah, no. but I'm happy to do it. <laughs> um, okay, so it goes one through nine. So there are different descriptors or names associated with each type based on what sort of school of Enneagram a person is looking at, but I'll do the ones that I like because I think they have the most positive and open connotations. And that is the ready model. But um, type one is called the reformer. And the core fear is about being bad or corrupt. The core desire is about being good and um, having integrity. And then you have type two, the helper. That is about um, the core fear is being unloved or unwanted. And the core desire is to be loved and wanted. And quickly, we start to see that the core fear and the core desire are two sides of the same coin. Um, type three, the achiever is all about having value. So they're afraid of being worthless and lacking value and they want to have value and, and feel worthy. Type four is the individualist that is all about, um, significance and meaning. So the individualist is afraid of lacking significance and not knowing who they are and they, uh, desire to have significance and understand their significance and be authentically themselves. Type five is the investigator and they are afraid of um, being incapable and not having the self-sufficiency, the ability to uh, be self-sufficient and they want to be capable and competent. Type six is the loyalist and the loyalist's fear is uh, not having support and security and guidance, and they want to have support and security and guidance. So um, type seven is the enthusiast, and they are afraid of being trapped in pain or discomfort or deprivation, and they want to have satisfaction. Type eight is the challenger, and the challenger is afraid of being harmed or controlled, and they want to have autonomy and power. And then we have type nine, the peacemaker, and the peacemaker is afraid of being 
separated or cut off, which is really separated or cut off from the wholeness of the universe and, and from themselves even. Uh, and they desire to be whole and be connected to other people. So there are then patterns that tend to arise from your whole life and everything you notice being um, in service to avoiding that core fear. Okay, cool. And can you also talk about the the whole, so I don't, so I did my original test through the Enneagram Institute. So I'm a type six. Um, I'm almost just, so I think I was like two points lower was a type four. Um, so can you explain that wing concept as well? Because I think the idea too, right, is that we all have pieces of each type in mm -hmm. us. And then we just yes. have some that just stand out way more than, than others. Is that, am I capturing that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important com uh, concept. And I don't usually like introduce it to people until they're comfortable with their type because, you know, some people are like, oh, but I'm also this, but I'm also, it's like, well, you're mostly your dominant type. Um, but yeah, we do have all nine types inside of us and to some degree. And I think that's really important. It allows us to connect with people of different types because there's part of, um, part of them that we recognize in ourselves. So the wing is the type that is directly next to your type on either side. So in the little circle, um, you, if you're a five, you could have a six wing, but you could also have a four wing, or you could have both, or you could not really have access to either. And that is pretty common as well. Uh, so a wing is just taking some of the patterns and the uh, thinking, feeling, and behaving patterns of the types next to yours to help support your type. So if you are a two, which is the helper, um, wants to be needed and wanted, and you have a one wing that's pretty strong, you're probably going to be doing the right thing and helping people improve themselves in that way as a means of better helping other people and reaffirming that you are a helpful and wanted person. Mm -hmm. And then if you are a two, the helper with the achiever wing, which is the three, you're going to use achievements and like more personal development of people um, and efficiency and sort of savvy to help people better. So those two different wings look very different in action for the two because they're helping they're, they're trying to, you know, help the helper achieve what they want to feel about themselves, but they're going about it in different styles. So um, some people have both wings, but only one shows up in one scenario and one shows up in another. So, you know, you could be a, a helper and around your friends and family, you have more of that one wing show up and in professional settings, you have more of that three wing show up. So the wings are more resources for us to broaden our lens. And there are a few different aspects of the Enneagram that allow us to get out of our own tired patterns for a little while, try something new. And um, that's especially helpful when our patterns are what got us into the problem. They won't get us out. Yep. I think it's fascinating. I could talk about it all day, like in relation to life in general, but since this is a podcast focused on writing, let's, <laughs> let's focus on writing a little bit. Um, so how have you seen the Enneagram manifest in people's approach to writing, even what they write, how they write? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the secret is that most people have been writing their protagonists as their own Enneagram type for a long time without realizing it. Um, that would be the default. So if we're not super aware of our character's motivations, which of course the Enneagram is a, a it types people by motivation. Um, if we're not hundred percent sure of their motivation, we'll just default to our own motivation in the scenario. So you may be writing a character that is familiar to you because it kind of reminds you of a bunch of other characters. And those other characters aren't necessarily your type. <laughs> but if you aren't aware of this pattern, then you may get to a situation where, you know, it's a big decision your protagonist has to make. And a protagonist of, let's say you are six and you are writing a type eight protagonist, your type eight protagonist should make a, or would likely make a decision 
based on their fear of being harmed or controlled. Um, whereas a six is going, the six author is going to make a different decision based on safety and what is the most secure um, position there. Mm. And so if you don't stay true to that eightness, right? And the trick to staying true to it is just learning about it and putting language to it. Um, then your character will probably do something that's out of character for them. And so that's when the, the, the readers go, that character wouldn't do that mm. and get very offended. Right. Almost always that goes back to the author has defaulted to their own type rather than the characters in that situation. So it's very useful for developing your protagonists and your antagonists. Um, it's helpful to know what secondary characters need to be built in because there are dynamics between particular types that bring out certain questions that the protagonist will then have to answer and consider. And so just for the practical purposes of character, it's extremely useful. And that's what I help authors use it for. Um, I have a story alignment service and they show up and we talk about their characters. We type their characters and we look at, okay, here's where they're going to butt heads. Here's where they might get along kind of thing based on their types. And that makes writing so much easier <laughs> because if you're not sure what your character would do next, you know exactly what to throw at them to uh, put them out of equilibrium and drive them forward. So that is one thing. There's also themes that arise from certain types uh, that you can write your books around. A type six is going to resonate with a theme of courage a lot more than say a type two. Type twos aren't, aren't thinking about it because it doesn't really fall in those attentional patterns of them um, as much as it does for a six. So you can find the sort of chemistry between your protagonist and the theme that they're going to be moving through in the story. And then uh, I do a lot of the author career coaching based on what do you actually want out of your career? <laughs> what is it that would keep you motivated? Some people say money and money has different motivations behind it. What are you hoping that money will make you feel about yourself and the world? That's what it comes down to. What is spending that money? What is earning that money make you feel? Um, so we explore that and we explore how to you know, build your fan base and who you're going to be attracting naturally based on your access to your head center or your heart center or your gut center, which are all things that the Enneagram explores. So those are, I mean, it, basically nothing is untouched by the Enneagram in this writing career when we start using that framework. Okay. This is fascinating because there's so much to unpack there. So let me just start with the character piece because I started, you know, writing obviously long before I knew about the Enneagram. And mm -hmm. so I'm, now I'm wondering, like, I'm going back to, you know, thinking about some of my earlier protagonists and I'm wondering, like, was, was, I didn't realize it, it was unconsciously manifesting through them in that way and how that might come out in a, in a book. So do you like work with an author first to figure out their type and then kind of recommend certain types they should be writing? Like, how does, how do you approach that? Well, you don't have to write a protagonist that's your type. It is just the easiest and most frictionless way to do it because when you're in a situation of what would this protagonist do, you can also go, what would I do? That's a much more familiar question for most people. But when we're looking at something like romance writers, you don't, you're, every book is going to be a new couple or a new, you know, thruple or, you know, harem or whatever, whatever you do. But you probably don't want to repeat the same type of heroine over and over again. Um, when you're working with a series where you have a single protagonist for 20, you know, 10, 20 books, it's, it's going to be hugely beneficial to pick a protagonist who is your type, because not only are you going to have an easier time writing them with less friction, but the themes that that will engage well with that character will also engage well with you and you will attract the right kind of people. Your persona will automatically be aligned, more aligned with the protagonist. But when we're looking at something like romance, where you're having a new one or people who write standalones, you're going to write other types. Um, and so that's where learning the other eight types besides your own become very, very helpful is you want to learn about them so that you can write them and see how they, they interact. So it is a little bit more tricky. And in that case, you don't really need to know what your type is, but I always encourage authors to know 
because that helps you sort of sort in your manuscript, where have I <laughs> sort of interjected myself where I don't belong. Mm. Okay. All right. So as a six and, you know, I'm spending a lot of time on sixes because I am one. And I think when I've listened to other podcasts, mm -hmm. like the six doesn't get a lot of a lot of love. I That's feel true. like it's, it's seen as like the boring type, but I hope it's not. Um, but so for a six, what, like, what are some of the character types you would suggest, like putting into that story to kind of either, you know, be an antagonist or be a sidekick or, you know, whatever it is? Mm -hmm. Well, I like to make sure that I have diversity of Enneagram types in my story, especially if I'm writing a series, because then you, you know, if I, I need to hit this pressure point of this, uh, of my protagonist, I bring in this type of character who is already kind of has those things swirling around them. Um, but as far as, you know, I, I would say that there's such a range with six and with six characters because that security focus of the six and the, is it safe and let's shore it up a little bit more and let's look for the worst case scenario and expect it so that maybe we're ready. Um, that can manifest in so many different ways. Some of the qualities that I think are undervalued in discussions about sixes are how group focused sixes are in that sixes care about the security of the group by and large, right? If you are in the sixes in crowd, mm. your security is also being taken into account and your safety by the six. The six wants to make sure everyone that they care about is safe. And when others are threatened, that's really where you see the six shine because the six can then move into the courage, which is one of the gifts of the six. Um, other care, other personality types can exemplify what the or what the six would consider courage, but they're not scared. So it's not courage, right? You must be afraid for it to be considered courage. Otherwise you're just doing things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you may be oblivious or reckless or something like that, but you're not being courageous. So the courage, uh, sixes have the highest capacity for courage. And so when a six takes a stand, there's just so much um, there's so much love and bravery behind it that it's a, a really powerful statement. I love that. Now, sixes can be very unsettled by some of the assertive types like threes and sevens and eights who will just sort of go for it, trusting that they'll figure it out when they need to. Uh, that is not usually the pattern of the six, although there is the counterphobic six, which tends to rush very quickly towards danger. Uh, again, it's still relative to what is dangerous. So it's still that six motivation, but it's more of the fight approach than the flight approach. It's, it's almost like a lower tolerance for anxiety. And so the counterphobic six will rush towards it to try and neutralize it quickly because they just can't sit in that anxiety about it. Um, and that is, that is a more rare version of the six. Most sixes are what is considered phobic sixes. So avoiding the danger or trying to forecast danger so that they can be prepared for it when it comes. Uh, some of my favorite sixes, <laughs> and this kind of gives you the range of sixes. So Mulan is a six. Dwight Schrute in the office is a six. And Jon Snow from Game of Thrones is a six. These are all big time loyalists who, um, who have that, you know, connection to other people and that loyalty. And I know loyalist is kind of a weird connotation in, you know, on this side of the American revolution, but it is a strength that holds the group together and keeps the group group safe. Mm. I love that. I can see how that plays out. So I write mysteries and I can see how mm -hmm. that would play out as um, a sixth pr protagonist that's kind of thrown into having to solve a mystery oftentimes because someone they love is either in danger of being accused of, you know, committing that murder or whatever it is, or because mm -hmm. someone in their community is, is threatened. So that's really, that's interesting. I never, I never thought of it like that. Right. That's a great motivation. Cause you know, when you're writing cozy mystery, you have to figure out how do I get this sleuth invested in this? Yeah. And if they're a type six, yeah. If someone they care about is, uh, accused of it, that would be 
enough of a catalyst to overcome the fear of having to solve this mystery and there's murderer out there. And if I get too involved, they may want to come after me. Yeah. I never actually thought of you. So I have been using this um, writer software called Plotter recently. And there mm-hmm. is, they have yeah. all kinds of, you know, think prompts in there and things. And, and one of the things I was so happy to find in there was Enneagram types. And honestly, I don't know, maybe I'm just not that creative, but that was the first time I thought of like, oh, I should apply Enneagram to my writing. And this has only been in the last couple of years, even though I've been doing, you know, mm-hmm. I've been involved in the Enneagram world for, you know, a bunch of years before that. Um, have you, did you, were you a writer before you discovered the Enneagram and like, or, or vice versa? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that, that's in Plotter because I told them to put that oh in there. Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I was working with Ryan and Cameron a little bit when they were getting all that going. And I was like, ooh, this is a great tool. That's um, awesome. But yeah, uh, I'm glad to hear it's still there and people are using it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I was writing before. I mean, I knew about the Enneagram years and years before I started really writing as a career, but I had been mistyped. And so when I read about it, it just didn't resonate with me. And that's pretty common for people. If you take a test and it mistypes you, you go, okay, I guess I could see some of that, but like, mm, not really what something I want to get into. And so I had just kind of ignored it. I was actually surprisingly typed as a nine, which is the peacemaker, which nobody who spends any amount of time with me thinks that's the case. Well, well for fuck's um, sake. I mean, why would they? I, I know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have no problem with confrontation when it when it feels like the right thing to do. Um, so yeah, that it didn't resonate with me, and then I was doing more of my writing. I mean, I've been writing for a long time, but in my early mid twenties was when I started taking it more seriously, and I did not use the Enneagram for that, and I did not use the Enneagram to start start one of my series, and then I started using the Enneagram and had to kind of wrangle in my protagonist to a type, which happens a lot. And it's not a big deal. I, I want to say that because it's like, if someone's partway through, you know, writing a series and then they learn about this and they're like, oh no, did I screw it up the, all the way through? It's really easy to wrangle in a character to a more co- coherent Enneagram type. You just start having them make more coherent decisions. And remember that if you're four books and you have a lot of readers, the readers liked it as it was. So there's nothing you need to go back and fix necessarily. Um, but once you start aligning it more with the type, aligning your protagonist or your antagonist or whatnot, it will just feel more realistic. Mm. And which is, it can also be you know, more of like the evolution of a character too, right? That's how that can be mm-hmm. addressed in a, in a series situation. Yes. Yes. And the Enneagram is a tool for growth and transformation. So, um, you can have a character that's kind of just where they are in their type the whole way through. That's fine. They're going to learn little lessons along the way. Um, but ultimately when I'm using the Enneagram with, with authors and their life, we want to look at the flexibility of the tool because it really has a lot of flow to it. So it is not meant to box you in. It's meant to get you out of the box you've already put yourself in. So we start to discover new parts of ourselves um, that we weren't able to see because of our narrow lens. And as we do more and more of that, we have more flexibility in how we make decisions. Like our, our standard operating procedures are going to be the same. But we bring more mindfulness to, oh, yeah, this is a pattern. We recognize this is a pattern I always do. Do I want to keep falling into this pattern and continue to get the same results from it? Or do I want to experiment with something new? So, um, yeah, it's a very flexible tool. And in your writing, you don't necessarily have to have always used it. It's just a bonus. It'll make your job easier as an author. And it will make the readers really resonate more strongly with the character as someone that they intuitively recognize because we intuitively recognize all these nine types. And so that's why people can still write to them, even if they don't know, you know, a a single bit of information about the Enneagram. Yeah. Okay. So you said you were mistyped as a nine and now you're what type? I am a one. I am the reformer. Okay. And you said earlier that that has influenced the way you write your own books. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I, as far as the career part of it, I occasionally look like a three, which is the achiever. And that's very common for ones and threes to look similar in execution because both are 
able to put their feelings aside to get things done. That's a, that's a, the, both the gift and the curse of those types, right? Because when we want our feelings, sometimes they're like, uh, not with the way you treat me. I'm not coming over there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I was trying to do, and this was maybe in 2018, was I tried to do this rapid release thing. Right. And this is what a lot of authors were trying to do because it was working really well in like 2015, 2016. It was working less well in 2018. um, And it works even less well today. So it was diminishing returns on that tactic. But I was putting out a book a month and then a book every other month and then a book every two months. And I was slowing down and I was burning out. And I realized that it was because I am not someone who can put my feelings aside forever. And I don't, I treat this like a business, but I don't commodify my stories like some types are, are able to do. And that is because I have high quality standards that I sometimes are too high and they're actually um, used as a defense mechanism. But sometimes it just, if it's just that little bit of pressure on the brake if you're not doing things in alignment with your type. And I really like to make sure that my stories are up to a certain standard that they don't, they're not riddled with typos. I'm okay with a few getting through, um, but that sort of thing. And I was moving too fast to feel confident in that. And that was burning a lot of fuel for me. And then I eventually ended up in burnout. And it was because I just wasn't aligned with, with what I cared about. And I was trying to be, you know, an an Enneagram three, the achiever and trying to keep pace with them, but they were built to do that sort of thing. And I was not. And I think that that's important for a lot of people. I love Enneagram threes. So I don't, this is no shade on them, Um, but they tend to be the ones on stage talking about how to just suck it up buttercup and write the book. And, you know, if you want, (laughs) if you want a social life, then don't expect any success kind of thing. And that threes can work that way for a while. Nobody can work that way forever, but threes, threes are best equipped to handle that sort of lifestyle. And most of us are not. And when we try to follow the advice of the person on stage, it, it's just not possible for us because our attention is on other things and we care more about other things than just numerical success. So that is one of my revelations. But then also uh, I I realized that I was attaching right and wrong to too many things, which is the case for reformers. (laughs) When your lens is sorting things into right and wrong, there are things that aren't fundamentally right or wrong, but you got to sort them somehow. And so then you end up with so few options, so little movement, restricted movement of thought and restricted uh, ability to feel, right? Because if you're attaching right and wrong to certain emotions, then it's wrong to feel that emotion and you don't get to feel it. But all emo- we need all emotions, right? All of them are responses for particular um, shittiness or for particular awesomeness. And we need to have them all at our disposal. So unpacking that is a long process of how we're, how we've been filtering things, but you have to hold each thing up to the light one by one and ex- inspect it and say, did I attach a label to this that doesn't need to be there? And if you did, then you can just, you know, peel that sticker off, toss it to the side and move on. So that was, that is how I have to approach my career as a one. Okay. All right. So in that vein, and you had mentioned this before, so let's, let's talk about sixes in that, in that regard, because I've, um, I've really been, I I haven't actually been thinking about it in the sense of my career and how, or even in, you know, I I think I might've applied the lens at one point when I was like really working in a corporate job. Right. And how, because I do find myself interestingly enough in relationship with a lot of threes in multiple areas of life. And there is a part of me that is that, overachiever. I got to do this. I got to do it well. I've got to do it right. And I had, and surprisingly, I don't even remember if I, if three was one of my top five, I I honestly don't remember, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I've lived in that world for so long. And I don't know if it's because I've been around so many threes, especially in corporate life. And then trying to figure out how to apply this to writing life. Like what would you say to a six? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't surprise me that you have a lot of threes in your life. Sixes and threes have a connection uh, along the Enneagram. So when sixes are under stress, they tend to take on some of the activity of the three. 
And it can be, okay, I've need, I need to get some accomplishments done so that I am secure in this group. Um, so it looks similar to the activity of the three, but it's coming from that different motivation of, if I want to stay safe in this environment, I have to do these things. So when I work with sixes as authors, um, it's sort of finding that balance between building in the security that you need and the safety plans that you need and so that you're not too beholden to one authority generally. Um, and the reason I do that isn't to like encourage bad habits or anything. It's because sixes are just not going to function that well if they don't feel like they have security in their business. If, you know, if a six is all in on KU, which could work if they are exclusive to Amazon in publishing and Amazon pulls some of its shit, which it does frequently, it's going to completely destabilize a six in a way that it may not destabilize other types. So that is, we don't want that. We don't want complete destabilization anytime um, Amazon pulls shit because it's a weekly basis at this point, frankly. Um, and so building that into the strategy and the plan of the six is something that we do because we just want to respect that that will always be there. And then at the same time, we want to look at where the six is seeking certainty, where they will never get it. So um, sometimes sixes will, well, there's two things with that, but um, sometimes sixes will be waiting until they know that something is a sure thing before pulling the trigger. And so I will say, what, what information don't you have yet that would better inform this decision and that you could possibly get? And so just bringing awareness to that, sometimes the six is like, oh yeah, I guess there's nothing that I, like, I don't know what I'm waiting for. I just don't want to make the wrong move. And then we talk, start a conversation about resilience. And, you know, when there is a crisis, sixes tend to be the most prepared for it anyway. Even though sixes feel the most unprepared, they tend to be the most prepared. And so really bringing that sort of reality check in there. But also with sixes, I will caution against who they are, um, who they are dubbing as an authority figure and who they are listening to because sixes um, lose touch with the inner authority and that leads to doubt. And so oftentimes the pattern that arises from that doubt is to find someone who does not doubt what they're doing. And there are a lot of people who are confident and not competent. <laughs> and so they will speak very conf confidently about this is how you make six figures. This is how you make, you know, sell a million copies. You just do this thing X, Y, and Z. And I know that because it worked for me. Um, it, that, that confidence is very, very alluring to a six. Cause it's like, Ooh, that's something that I don't have, um, that I don't have all the time or that I wish I had more of in this moment. And so then being drawn, drawn to the wrong authorities, the wrong experts can be um, something that just takes sixes off track for a while. And that it's also very, very unsettling, upsetting, maybe even traumatic for sixes to follow an authority and then realize that authority is a fraud or can't be trusted because that hits at the heart of the six fear um, when someone, when they feel betrayed. And so we just want to take that, you know, sort of inspect that for a type six career. Who are we looking to as authority and, and are they really someone to trust? And, and are you, are you maybe giving them too much authority over how you run your business? It's so funny. Cause when I first took the test, I had read through all the types first and I was convinced I was going to be a four and I am pretty again, pretty closely, uh, like almost equal a four and a six, but I am higher in the six. But the more I started to read and learn about the six, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so me. It's like nauseating, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, a lot of what you're saying is resonates a lot. Like I'm just thinking of even just people in my life and mm -hmm. the authority that you kind of give someone sometimes as a six, right? Even in personal type relationships. Um, and I never like understood why that was or how to navigate it before I started to learn about the Enneagram. So, right. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, what about like the actual approach of like writing your book, like, and the types of writing and, and that kind of thing, how do you see it mm -hmm. manifesting there for people? Well, yeah. So the actual process is, 
going to vary. Your your core fear will inevitably get involved. It will have its way, um, or at least have its say. You don't have have to let it have its way. Um, and and so the patterns of the type will show up in that. For instance, sixes. I, I see a lot of sixes have very intense outlines. They want to know what's next. They want to be able to be sure that they have it right before they start. Oh God, that's definitely um, not and, me. <laughs> I'm a huge Yeah. Dancer. And again, that's not, that's not all because sometimes sixes want the writing to be the place where they don't have to, um, think that far ahead. Right. So it depends on where, you know, it's all relative to that fear, but is this a place where that fear is shining through and getting you stuck? Or is that this a place where you get to uh, free yourself from the patterns and take a little vacay from yourself? And a lot of writing is like kind of a vacay from self. Uh, we get to play around in other types. We get to see things from other points of view. We get to put our protagonists in situations that we wouldn't want to be in. So there is that as well. Um, and it, it goes very much on this person-to-person -person basis of what we're using writing for, our background. There's a lot that, that comes into play with the Enneagram. So it's it's simple to understand the basics, and the more you learn, the more you have to learn. <laughs> so it goes very, very deep very quickly. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, I have to watch my perfectionism as a as a one and make sure that that's not tripping me up. I have to use timers because if I give my my inner critic enough oxygen, she will just keep telling me that this is terrible. So I time myself so that I have to keep pushing forward and um, outpace her. Um, there, are, there are other similar sorts of patterns that show up for the types. Um, the fours usually will fight against any sort of writing to market and will not want to, um, and will fight against the tropes and against the, uh, you know, sort of genre conventions a little bit. And that's fine. That's actually how you move genres forward and how they evolve. But, um, someone telling a three, you have to not do that, or I'm sorry, telling a four, you have to not do that. The individualist will completely disregard that person's opinion from there on out and just write the book they want to write. Now, when I talk to him, I'm like, how much of this is just you trying to feel special? Like, and is the message, you know, do you, if this is an important message, you want people to receive it. So you have to package it in a way that's familiar enough for people to receive it. And then usually the four is like, okay, I guess I could, I could, you know, sort of attach this, fasten this down to some tropes that people are familiar with. And it's like, well, you were doing tropes anyway, you just didn't realize it. But, um, so that's like a conversation I would have with the individualist who needs to feel significant and unique. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I guess as, as far as then the actual execution of it, that varies so widely. That's almost more of like a strengths question than a yep. Enneagram question. Yep. What about things like, like, I don't really technically believe in writer's block, but I know that's a phrase that gets tossed around a lot, right? Do, do you find mm -hmm. that certain types are more kind of prone to that idea of like, oh, I'm blocked or? I think all types can end up there. And it's, it's a, it's caused by different things. So we have three centers, according to the Enneagram um, theory, we have three centers. We have our head center where we do our thinking, our heart center where we do our feeling, and then our body or gut center where we, um, where our intuition and our action lives. And they're all very interconnected, right? We can feel emotions in our body. We can think about our emotions. Um, we can have feelings about our thoughts. <laughs> so they all kind of move together. And each type has a sort of tendency to shut off one of these centers or to disconnect from one of these centers. And that is often where the writer's block happens because the place that they need to go is going to require their least developed center. And, um, or, you know, a lot of the times if you are out of touch with your heart center, you feel like you have writer's block. There's probably a lot of things happening in your life outside of writing that you need to let yourself feel. Um, and because there's so much happening, you're not letting yourself feel there's this buildup. And so then that makes it really hard to sit and focus and think and feel your way through uh, the next scene. And the same can go for people who are, you know, have 
have their body center the least developed. Sometimes there may be something that they need to attend to. The writers, not notoriously great for moving their bodies. Um, and that is really important. So sometimes if it's a type that, that it has disconnection from the body center to get to the next scene, to think of the next one, to know where they're going next, go for a walk, stretch, do yoga, do something that activates that body center. And then that can, can help you move forward. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. I love that. And those are all great tips, whether or not you're feeling blocked or not, right? Just kind of making sure you're right. in touch. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and it helps you maintain your equilibrium just in life. It helps you um, build that resilience that we are going to need as writers. Um, it is a hard game. And we had like a brief glimpse of it being easy in like 2012 to 2016. And we thought that's what the, that was the new normal. And that was just a little blip. It was a little, uh, lucky moment, but a lot of the people who were making a ton of money during those years are now struggling and they need that resilience. Yep. For sure. And so I think you would agree, especially since you run your own publishing company, that even if you're a traditionally published writer, that on some level writers are entrepreneurs, right, of their own careers. Um, and I know that there's been a lot of, um, I've listened to some other like business podcasts about the different types and their ability to be entrepreneurs. Do you believe that everyone, regardless of type, has the ability to kind of be that self-manager, that self-CEO? Yes. <laughs> yes, but some are going to require a lot more in place for it. Uh, some types are more responsive to other people giving them instructions. Some, sometimes we'll, we'll desperately need a coach or an accountability partner or someone to bounce ideas off of someone to validate their ideas. Uh, so as far as like a, an entrepreneur who does it all themselves and doesn't need any support, eventually every type will run out of gas doing that. Even threes. So it's about, <laughs> yes, even threes. They just take the longest to notice it yeah. because they're on autopilot and they're still producing, you know, and that's, that's what I, um, I'm working with more and more threes lately because threes, the achiever gets into this pattern of autopilot where they're still producing a bunch of books and they feel completely disconnected from the books when they get to this point. And when they're not actively writing books, they're completely checked out. They're in their stress type of the nine, which is the peacemaker, but they're not in like a healthy version of it. They're in this sort of disconnected, almost associative, um, uh, version of it yeah. where they sit and they binge Netflix or something like that. Right. Just check out. And so to everyone else, things look fine. The books keep coming and they are becoming more and more disconnected from themselves and heading towards burnout in that way. So it does take a while, uh, but even threes like to have people to connect with, to bounce off ideas, you know, bounce ideas off of and that sort of thing. Um, I would say that if you are a nine, you're going to want to create some accountability, some external accountability because, you know, it, it can, when you're just checking in with the moment and going, yeah, this is great. It's hard to plan for the future. Um, there's also, you know, the immediacy of being nines are a gut type. So there's this sort of immediacy that, that eights, nines, and ones live in of the way it is now is the way it will always be. And so if nines are okay now, it can be, where's the motivation to really look ahead and plan. Um, but I know plenty of nines who are writers and just are happy with it. And maybe, Maybe they're not full-time writers forever, but that there's no hard definition of what being a writer is. So, mm. you know, you want to just make sure that you're meeting all of your emotional needs yeah. however you can so that you can continue to write whatever form and at whatever pace that is. Yeah. I think you just have to write to be a writer, right? I've had people yeah. say to me, well, like, you also don't, don't have to write sometimes. True. True, true, Because <laughs> that's the thing. Some people go through these these down periods and 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 I get what you're saying. Like, yes, like you write things and and you are a person who writes um, by definition. 
but there, there, that can be misinterpreted. And I think sometimes misused by certain people mm. to say that if you're not writing every day, you're not a writer. Oh, yeah. no, no, no. And it's like, well, so am I a writer only when I'm typing? Because I don't think typing is a writer. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes, sometimes don't realize that you like thinking is part of writing. Yeah, sure. Right. For sure. And, and they don't leave themselves that space. And it's like, well, have you have you, they're like, I just finished the last book. I need to move on to the next one. And I can't yet. And I'm like, well, have you thought about what the next one will be? Yeah. <laughs> this is all part of it. You yeah. know, go for a walk, go for a drive, take a shower, wherever you do your best thinking and, and get excited about it. Build up some of that pressure again. Totally. Yeah. No, I just mean, I've had people say to me like, well, I haven't written a book yet. So I don't think I'm really a, a writer, which I'm like, that's not true. You're, you're, that's your intention. You're doing other things. You're mm -hmm. writing blogs, you're writing, you know, whatever it is. Um, you're working mm -hmm. on a book. So definitely don't be afraid to call yourself a writer. Right. And it can also help to, um, switch from identity-based language to action-based language. Mm -hmm. So I am a writer. It would be identity-based, right? And now it's, um, it's boxing us in and we do this all the time. And it, it does help to create an identity for ourselves. Sometimes identity can be very beneficial of, I am a writer, therefore I should sit and write the book, <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, and then sometimes it can be boxing us in like, I am a writer and therefore there are certain things I can't do or I'm not allowed to do. Yeah. So I like to encourage people to say, I write books rather than I am a writer. Mm, I love that. That's a really good reframe. What about community? Do you find there are types that need more of that community-based support versus, you know, people who can just kind of power through on their own until they, you know, need some accountability or coach or something like that? Yeah. Um, I would say that if you are a six or a seven or a nine, you're probably going to want to get some community around you very quickly. All the types will benefit from it um, if they are in the place to receive the feedback. And then I would say that twos also really enjoy community, but a lot of what I tell the helper is you need to set more boundaries around your time because helpers struggle to get the book written because there are much quicker ways to get the satisfaction of helping someone than through writing, you know, a 60,000 word manuscript and then getting some fan mail in. Um, so then that, that always takes the back seat. So, if, you know, some need that community and that accountability to kind of ground them. And then, some build twos will just build a huge community and turn it into their full-time job. <laughs> yep. I can see that. So do you have examples of like famous writers that people might know that, that, you know, their types yeah. that you can give us some examples? Yes. Um, okay. So type one, the reformer you have CS Lewis was a reformer. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think of who else, some famous people, Nelson Mandela was a reformer, um, type two singer songwriter, Dolly Parton Ooh. is a two, um, type three, I'm trying to think of a type three writer. There are a lot of them. Type threes often end up in nonfiction, mm. um, from just a pattern that I've observed. There's a lot of, and this isn't everyone, threes can write other things, but they tend to write when they do write fiction, it tends to be about the rich and famous, the society, that person working from rags to riches. Threes love that story, that narrative. Um, but threes tend to have these big businesses and they use books as a funnel, as part of their funnel. So there's a lot of nonfiction three, a lot because threes love to motivate people. Threes really get a lot of energy out of motivating others and inspiring others. Um, Taylor Swift is a three. I would say she's a writer. Mm, oh, <laughs> um, for sure. She's, yeah. She's a very good writer. Yeah. Uh, because she, but if you look at what she's building, she's building this, this mythos of herself and her rise to stardom. Mm. And that's again, that sort of three pattern that we see a lot. There are a lot of four writers. There are a lot of Enneagram four writers, the individualists you have Anne Rice, you have Edgar Allan Poe, you have Virginia Woolf, this deep emotional mood-based writing. Um, Poe talks about the singular effect that he tries to do in his writing 
of he just wants to create a single emotion. Mm. He wants to affect the reader with a single feeling that he leaves them with. Um, so that is when you're when you're reading a, a book that really hits a mood, you're probably reading a type four writer. Mm. Glennon Doyle is also a four. Mm, yeah. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. And probably a very strong three wing as well. Mm. Maybe. I don't know. She talks a lot about, she, she's, she's had a few Enneagram people on her podcast too. And she talks a lot about uh-huh. being a four and you know how that's played uh-huh. out in her life. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then the fives, you have Agatha Christie as a five. Mm. Um, I believe Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a five because simply because Sherlock was such a five that I feel like only a five would write a character like that. Um, For sixes, you have uh, J.R.R. Tolkien is a six. I, there's theories that George R.R. Martin might also be a six, Mm. Um, but who's, who who really knows, but Tolkien's definitely a six, um, seven writers. They are out there for some reason. I'm thinking of someone like F Scott Fitzgerald, or, uh, there are a lot of writers that are sevens who tend to write travel based Hmm. things, right? These uh, writing about these novel experiences, trying to bring it back. Uh, yeah, I'll have, I'll have to think about the seven cause I know there is one cause I've done, <laughs> I've talked about this before, but I'm, I'm blanking on the sevens. Um, eights Hemingway, mm. Hemingway was an eight. Okay. Um, oh, and Mark Twain was also a six. Oh, so okay. that's the sort of the wit and the sarcasm of the six is, yeah, you can see that in Twain. Um, and then nines, lots of nine writers. So you have, like I would say, as far as storytellers, Jim Henson is a nine, right? These sort of fun, friendly um, characters. You have Barack Obama is a nine in his memoirs. I mean, he's a fantastic writer. Yeah. He writes very rich prose. It's, I mean, his memoir from four years in office is 770 pages. Sometimes the talk style of the nine is called the epic saga mm. <laughs> <laughs> because nine see everything as relevant. It's all relevant details. They see all of the layers of everything going on. And so it's like, well, of course I have to mention this random thing because it plays into this whole, you know, tapestry I'm weaving here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the, the styles really shine through in those examples, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's very cool. Um, and then you did mention earlier, I just want to go back to audience and like how, you know, different styles of writing obviously are attracting different audiences. So how, how does that work with the Enneagram? Like, are you trying to attract certain types when you're writing a certain type or? I think that people are naturally attracting people of Uh, mostly their type. And it's not to say that all type threes have type three audiences, because I think the reach of the three is very compelling. Um, and a lot of people are like, well, yes, I want success, but I will say that what we want to be aware of when we are looking at audience is that we're not trying to build an audience that someone else has who is a different type. Mm. So sometimes we want to, not alienate a single person, right? So I can't let my type shine through. I can't be just unapologetically a a five um, because then, you know, then I'll only attract fives. And that's not really the case because there are a lot of times in our lives where we're attracted to people of a particular type because they have something that we are trying to understand. And so we'll gravitate towards that type. So, um, you know, fives and, and looking at audience with fives, I talk a lot about this two fives of, you don't need to ask them how they're feeling. That is not the audience, audience engagement that an investigator is going to want to know because investigators are not super in their feels. Mm. They're in their head. They want to They want people to share facts. They want to examine systems together. They don't necessarily say, how is everyone feeling? I've got to make sure that everyone's feeling okay before I can feel okay. That's more of a two pattern and a way that a two would relate to their audience um, because that's going to fuel a two. So yeah, you will, once you start, stop trying to 
appeal, have the appeals of types that aren't yours and start really leaning into your type, you will narrow your audience in a really beautiful and fulfilling way where you will have the interactions with them that fill you up. You will uh, be able to be more yourself and they will respond to that because if you're trying to kind of be everything, people can't get a read on you. They can't, you know, they don't have anything to, to hold on to about you and, th- and they'll have a harder time connecting. Yeah. Okay. This is awesome. I could talk to you all day, but just one more question. <laughs> so you said you were mistyped sure. before, you know, where should P and there's a lot of now there's a, like when I, when I took the test, I remember there was like one place, like the Enneagram Institute was like the place. Mm-hmm. So for people who are trying to figure out where to take this test and get like the right type, what would you suggest? So there are a few tests. I will give a caveat about tests is most of them are 50 to 60% accurate on your number one, uh, results. So if it's just because it's your first score, your highest score, doesn't mean that it's necessarily your type, but it's about 90% accurate or 90% predictable that your dominant type will be in the top three scores. So of course, if you have a bunch of scores that are really almost identical or are identical, then you would want to come talk to someone like me about this and I can help you with some differentiating questions. Um, so when you're taking the test, just, you know, hold, hold lightly the, the top number. So what you want to do is you want to take a test. You want to read a lot about your top three, uh, scores and, and then you will know what, right? Like when you hit it, you'll go, Hmm, there's something here. And then you can kind of read more about it and examine it sort of as the, as the operating system of your life. Does that, does that make more sense of what I've been doing or less? Um, but I would say the Enneagram Institute's web, uh, test Enneagram is a good one. The Enneagram Spectrum Method, Dr. Wagner does that. That It's called the WEPS Test, W-E-P-S-S. And that is a good one as well. That gives a lot of information. It, it scores based on percentile, and it gives you resourceful and non-resourceful scores. So you can, so someone like me can look at that and get a lot more information from it. Um, but again, it's, you know, it'll give you information on your top three scores to read about. And there is the IEQ nine test, but I wouldn't recommend that for most people because it's, it's a lot of information all at once. And I think it deprives people of the process of self-exploration to get to that type Mm -hmm. that can be really beneficial. If I just tell you your type, you may or may not resonate with it, but as you do your research for it and read more about the types, you're going to become so convinced that I could tell you you're a different type and you wouldn't believe me. So I, I think that, that the exploration is valuable in this case. Um, something like the IEQ nine that has a, it claims a 95% accuracy rate. That's good if you're like going into a corporate environment. So like when I got trained on that, it was like, I'm not using this for authors. I think authors can self-reflect pretty well. (laughs) And like, you know, that's, that is an important part of that that discovery process. So those two are good places to start. They do both cost $15. So if you want a free test, um, to get you started, to narrow down some types that you're definitely not, you can go to eclecticenergies.com. And I find that one to be pretty accurate. Okay, cool. It is true what you said. Cause like, like I was saying to you before, I didn't expect to be a six. I was all about like, I'm going to be a four. I'm going to be an individualist. That's who I am. And and then I was a little disappointed at the sixth thing. I'm like, that can't be right. And then I was reading, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so me. <laughs> like, well, yeah. And that happens so much. Like there's usually two responses when we initially meet our type of either, oh man, this is so me. Like, and that's, that's one of those fuck's sake moments of like, oh, fuck's sake. Yes. Yeah, that is it. Yes. Um, and, and, or we're like, that's absolutely not me. And how dare you tell me that's me. And that also can be an indicator that it's you. Yeah. Yep. I love it. Um, it's usually like the sort of meh, I guess maybe, maybe not. This is me that, that for me prickles my, my sense that it's probably not the type right? If we just feel so, so on it, it's probably not our type, but strong reaction either way tells me there's something there. Yeah. Awesome. So Claire, where should people, where can people go to find you and find out more about your books and your, your Enneagram counseling services or coaching services, I should say. Well, I guess you are kind of a counselor, right? It does get very, (laughs) it does kind of counseling uh, sometimes. Um, FFS.media is my website. Uh, That has all of my 
courses. I run master classes occasionally. Uh, it has my consulting and coaching links and where to find me. And you can also follow me on Instagram or TikTok at ffs.media. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. This was amazing. I really hope our leader, our, our listeners get a lot out of it because it's just, it's fascinating. It can really lead you to different places in your writing and your life. So thank you for sharing. Thanks so much for having me on. I, I'm always excited to talk about it. Awesome. So there you have it. That's how the Enneagram can shape your life as a writer. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're a six like me, that you are happy that we got some love today because we usually don't on the other podcasts. They're, they never talk about sixes. Hate it. But definitely check out Claire's resources and get familiar with the Enneagram. I promise you it's life-changing. And I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. I'd also love to know what Enneagram type you are and if or how it's shaped your writing life. Send me a DM on Instagram at Liz Magavro and let me know, or hop on over to kateconti.com and send me a message through my website. And if you like this episode, make sure you rate it, review it, and definitely subscribe to the podcast so you can stay up to date on all the new episodes. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.